Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we're talking about international research collaboration post-Brexit. As the UK leaves the EU, questions will arise about participation in EU research programmes such as Horizon 2020 and Horizon Europe and what the UK's whole strategy should be for international research collaboration both within Europe and across the world. To discuss some of these issues with me is Professor Louise Kenny, Executive Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences at the University of Liverpool. Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to start off, can you set into context a little bit for a university like Liverpool, what the contribution of EU funding is to your overall research portfolio? Like most Russell Group universities, European funding has been uh, transformative. Um, the contribution of all the framework programmes uh, right up to and including H2020 has really reset the dial on how we fund research, how we collaborate across Europe. Um, it really has been nothing short of transformational. In Liverpool particularly, we are perhaps not as exposed in terms of European funding as we would have liked to have been. And that really just reflects the fact that as a Russell Group University, perhaps we're not where we should have been in terms of our European collaborations and the amount of success we were having in those various programmes. But even, you know, even with that caveat, it's still um, it's still been a significant boost to how we how we collaborate and how we fund our, our work. And that picture of, uh, of funding, is it uniform across disciplines or are there some disciplines that are uh, more heavily reliant on European funding? No, it, it's not uniform. I think there are certain areas, certainly in my former university in uh, Ireland. So I worked in Ireland for 14 years, actually, before I came back to the UK. Uh, and I found that um, in the UK and in Ireland, the European funding is perhaps not uniformly distributed. And it's different. So things that would be very successful in Ireland, perhaps, um, you know, and that's the beauty of European. That's the beauty of European collaboration. Right. We all excel in different things. And so we come together under the umbrella of EU funding. But that means in any given university or in any given uh, ecosystem, any given country, perhaps the overall pattern of funding is not uniformly distributed, but we all get something. Now, it's not just about EU research funds, of course. The EU also provides structural and regional development funds. How do they contribute to universities across the UK, like Liverpool, but others as well? Yeah, so most of your listeners will probably know that regions like Liverpool have benefited massively from regional development infrastructure funding in everything from the transport system to also some European funding into actual physical infrastructure buildings that the university uh, either use or, or part, you know, part own. So, and, and that funding has been very important to regions like Liverpool. I would, I would suggest probably more vis visually impactful and, and more impactful outside of, of London and the Golden Triangle. Than, than perhaps people who live within the Golden Triangle might realise. I mean, European investment funding has been, again, transformational for Liverpool over the last decade and has been a, um, one of the drivers, really, for the economic renaissance that this city has seen. Uh, and, of course, for, for me as a, a pro-vice-chancellor in a faculty of health and life sciences, 
that that's really important because that influx of investment and the way it attracts businesses and flourishing startups that's that's really important for a university like us because we're we're all part of that finely balanced ecosystem and our innovation needs to translate it needs to make the you know the leap from the bench to the manufacturing sector and industry is really important for that and and that's what european investment funding has done for liverpool it's it's really gave given the um, economy a shot in the arm and has been transform, uh, transformational for, for that wider ecosystem. So as the UK leaves the EU, we've got a number of choices. We, the UK, have a number of choices to make, um, both on research funding and also on how to invest in, in regions. We hear quite a lot about the northern powerhouse and investment in regions anyway uh, at the moment from uh, from the government, uh, which is clearly going to be welcome and, and replacing some structural funds clearly important. On the research funding side, one option clearly is for the UK to become an associate member of Horizon Europe once that programme starts in 2021. What do you think the level of support for becoming an associate to Horizon Europe is across the UK university sector? Well, I think, I mean, speaking personally, I was obviously like most people working within the sector. I was a, you know, a ardent Remainer, but I'm also a, dem- you know, I'm also profoundly supportive of our democracy. And I think the in the last few months, we've all accepted that we are leaving the EU. And I, I think that's helpful. I think we've got to move on. We are leaving the EU and we need to embrace the, the opportunities that that brings. And I think I think there will be opportunities. I think it's probably a little bit too early to say uh, what enthusiasm there will be across the sector for the individual programmes that are being promos- proposed, because I think we need to see the small print. Mm. Um, but what I do know, talking to my colleagues across uh, the Russell Group and elsewhere, is that there is an absolute commitment to ensure that the the historic networks that we've built up, the powerful scientific communities that we are key members of in every discipline across Europe are maintained. And whatever vehicle or funding mechanism or programme that the government puts in place to ensure that that happens will be will be welcomed. I mean, we, we often we're often not very good in the UK of reminding ourselves about how good we are. Uh, and, and I think that's particularly prevalent in the university sector. But we need to reflect on the fact that no matter what league table you look at, in no matter which publication, no matter which country of the world you're in, at any one time, two or three of the top universities in the top five are in the UK. Our science is exceptional. It's work, it's world leading. And I think our European collaborators, uh, you know, on a peer to peer level, they recognise that and they are absolutely committed to ensuring that the UK and our researchers remain part of those networks and part of that that wider system. So I I think there will be uh, significant support for any credible mechanism, any credible funding programme that comes down the track that enables us to participate uh, within those networks. So one of the things that uh, you will have seen recently is a report by uh, Adrian Smith and Graham Reed, who were asked by the government in 2019 to think of some of the options, particularly if uh, the UK did not sign up to Horizon Europe. And certainly one key element of that was sort of developing a whole UK vision for international research and international research collaboration. And I guess from what you've just said, that part of that vision will be to make absolutely sure that we 
maintain the great links we already have with EU collaborators. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what do you think such a vision should look like? What are the key elements of it? So we could do more to to foster collaboration within within the UK. You know, I, I certainly I, I work in in a former life when I was a you know a, a very active researcher. I work in a very niche area of reproductive science. I, I'm an obstetrician by background. My PhD in, is in vac- vascular biology, and there are probably about 100 researchers in the world that that do the kind of thing that I do. But in a in a previous life, I found it easier to collaborate with researchers in the states and in Australia than I did with researchers in London, for a variety of different reasons. And I think we could do more to actually enable and foster and pump prime that inter you know, intra research ecosystem. But you know, unequivocally, that's that's a very small niche discipline. Unequivocally, the great grand challenges uh, that are facing the world right now, AMR, global global warming, they are only going to be really tackled successfully and at pace by international collaboration. So in terms of what that would look like, I think the main concern, and you, you may you may be coming to this actually, Gavin, but I think the main concern that most researchers would have is that whatever is put in place, whatever that may be by the governments, I think the concern would be that the level of funding is, is equivalent, mm-hmm. not to what we put in to the scientific pot, if you like, of H2020 or the other framework programmes, but what we drew out. And, and I think everyone needs to remind, uh, we, we need to remind ourselves that what we put in was actually smaller than what we got out. So we don't want a, a sort of smaller dividend or a smaller piece of the pie. Mm. So clearly money is is important. And uh, the government in any case have committed to raising R&D expenditure to 2.4% of GDP. And we know there's a long term ambition to do that. So conceivably, there's more money in the system and, and, and coming into the system. It's not just money, of course. Let's imagine a, a wonderful scenario where the money's accepted. The question then is, how do we make sure that we get we get to some of these uh, positions we want. One of the things you talked about earlier was not breaking what we already had effectively. So what kind of things do we need to make sure that we don't break what we've already had? Well, I think one of the other concerns we'd have is the human capital piece. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Money's half the equation, but good research requires excellent researchers. And I think we one of the concerns that we would have expressed as a community before leaving the EU was that leaving the EU may put barriers up to Britain being able to attract the brightest and the best to come and work in in our sector. So we need to ensure that we put a framework or a system in that enables us both to attract in the brightest and the best, not just from Europe, from elsewhere in the world, but particularly given Brexit, uh, we need to maintain the ability to recruit people from within Europe, to attract them here and to keep them here, as well as, you know, as well as an increased increased emphasis on growing our own and retaining our own. Uh, but serious, but the human capital element of it is is something that's very significant. And, and obviously, as a pro-vice-chancellor who has, you know, the, the sort of issues of retention and attracting mm-hmm. people in is something that is uh, on my desk on a daily basis. So what might that look like? I mean, we're, we're talking about it, obviously, clearly what will be a change for people coming from within the EU 27. But imagine right now we're trying to recruit people from Australia or from the United States or, or from Canada or, or, or wherever. What kind of new system 
could the UK put forward that would help with recruitment and retention? Well, I think, I mean, the Russell Group have have been really active in this area and have been doing quite a lot of thinking and very constructive planning around what an intelligent immigration system would look like when we're trying to attract in that that talent. Um, and I think, you know, if there is if, a, if there is a, a sort of bonus to to Brexit, uh, if there is a, you know, a, it's that it's that in a new in a new era, we will be able to manage an immigration system where we are open to the rest of the world. So sure. rather than take you know, people from the European Union, because we are legally obliged to do so, we can actually, you know, scour the entire world for talent uh, and be open in a way that perhaps we, we weren't previously. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's to be welcomed. One of the things that is, is raised from time to time and certainly came up in the report that uh, Graham and Adrian put forward in November was this balance between funding the very highest quality research wherever it happens to be versus ensuring that all regions and countries in the UK benefit from the research that we have. Now, we talked a little bit about the implications of structural funds and, and whatever on the area of Liverpool earlier, but as we put together this kind of strategy, what do we need to do to make sure that the benefits of international research collaboration really do feed in all across the different regions and countries of the UK? Well, this is something I've thought quite a lot about, um, particularly in the sort of health and life sciences sector. So we have a, a, you know, we have a vibrant, flourishing research agenda here in Liverpool. But if you look at the amount of funding that we have pulled down per head of the per head of the population, for example, and then particularly perhaps in medical research, if we just talk about that one discipline for a minute, uh, we're dwarfed by the likes of Cambridge, Oxford, uh, other members of the Golden Triangle. Now, as a medic, my frustration around that is that the the disconnect between uh, the areas of the country where patients actually have the diseases of interest that we're researching and where that research is carried out. And it, if you think about that, so if you're, you're, you're in the Cambridge Science Park and you're researching vascular dementia or a respiratory disease or you know anywhere on that pathway, no matter where, where it is, whether it's very to the left and it's early stage or very applied and at the end of the translational pathway, ultimately, it, you're going to want to pull that through in an experimental medicine paradigm and then into to clinical trials. And at the moment, there is a physical, a geographical disconnect between where most of the patients with those diseases live and where the research is carried out. And that's a barrier, right? Because it means that those patients are not available. Uh, and yet in places like Liverpool, those researchers are, those patients are abundant and they're not able to participate in some of the more translational uh, research that will benefit their, their health and well-being. So I think we need to take a more holistic view of what is a complex ecosystem and recognise the fact that continuing to fund in silos and in, you know, in areas with historical excellence may not be for the benefit of the wider, the wider economy. There is some absolutely outstandingly good work being done in Liverpool, but it could be significantly enhanced by a small increase in funding. Uh, and I think that's the whole argument around, you know, the various arguments around the Northern powerhouse and even the Midlands powerhouse. Mm -hmm. If we can decentralise some of that, uh, particularly in the life sciences sector, if we can decentralise it, it will be for the greater good of everybody. We're not going to be weakening the quality. What we're actually going to be doing is like pump priming and actually, you know, giving rocket fuel to those areas of the country where the entire sort of framework that you need to conduct that research is, is present. Great researchers in great universities with also patient populations that are literally on the doorstep. And that throws out 
questions more generally about the funding structures we have. I mean, both about domestic funding within the UK, but also about international collaboration funding. Do we need to have specific funds for international collaboration research, for instance? Um, is UKRI the right vehicle to deliver those funds? Do you know, I think uh, I would probably suggest that's a tiny bit above my pay grade. <laughs> I think, you know, I wouldn't like to say that UKRI is not the right vehicle to deliver those funds. I do think that there are very specific challenges throughout the entire scientific arena, but again, focusing specifically on health and life sciences, which is my domain, that are best delivered by international collaborations, not in every case. Uh, but there are certainly some. And in those cases, then I think on a case by case basis, you can make quite a strong argument for having ring, ring fence funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the governance, the management of that, of that, I think UKRI's remit is broad enough uh, to have you know, reasonably good oversight of that. I, I, I can't. And, and also, you know, in a, in a fiscally constrained time, I'm not sure it would be a good idea or we should encourage thinking about setting up a, yet another sort of administrative body or framework uh, to distribute any such funding because um, you just create another, you know, a, another another framework or another funding body and it's twice the cost of administration for something that could be done quite quite efficiently, I, I suspect, by the um, the institutions already in place. And when you look at UK funding for research, obviously we're split between project future funding, typically through the research councils, and quality-related or QR funding typically after a ref coming through a different part of UKRI. So we have the dual support system. Of course, there are other funders as well, industry and charities or whatever. But I'm interested a little bit in in the role of QR, particularly for international research collaboration. Is it a is it a key enabler? Do we need to do anything different because of uh, the opportunities or, or, or difficulties that will come up because of uh, leaving the EU? Clearly, it's a, a key enabler because it, it doesn't have the constraints on it that um, that project specific funding does. It doesn't have the same constraints. I guess for, for me, we're, we're starting to look now at our strategic priorities in Liverpool as to you know what that post Brexit environment looks like and how we can continue to support our international programmes. And that's that's very important to a university like Liverpool, who are we are very global. We have a you know a campus in Africa. We have a, a strong presence in China. We've recently done a strategic mapping exercise of our global presence, and we are very, very globally networked and actually, interestingly, predominantly outside of Europe. Mm. And so the ability to pump prime and to continue to support those networks that are flourishing where we are really having massive impact. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of our vaccine work, for example, which is intrinsically dependent upon us having a presence in, in Africa. And we do use our core support to fund that. So and I I suspect, like most universities, we'll be looking in the post-Brexit environment as to how we can better and more efficiently do that to get greater bang for buck. Let's look forward then. And just to sort of conclude, I like to try and end on a a positive note. If uh, we get this right, and, and I appreciate that for a lot of people, maybe leaving the EU wasn't what they'd initially hoped for. But if we get it right in terms of some of the new things we put in place in international research collaboration structures, where could we get to? Where could we be in, say, five years time? Well, I mean, you're right. And, I, you know, as I, as I said at the start, I was, uh, you know, an ardent Remainer, but I have I have absolutely accepted that we're leaving the EU. It's We live in a democracy and that it is the right thing to do now, no matter what my personal beliefs were prior to prior to this point in time. And I think with every challenge and, you know, even even those 
people who were ardently supportive of Brexit recognise that it is going to give us a challenge. It's a seismic change. It will be a challenge. And within every challenge is an opportunity. And I think from my perspective, I think one of the the greatest advantages of this is that collectively, as as a research community, as a national research community, Brexit and the post-Brexit era may actually make us think about what we need to stop doing and to be really efficient and really lean and to get you know, fantastic uh, world-class research in the things that we do. Sometimes the hardest thing is to stop doing stuff that we don't do brilliantly. And I think that's, that's a real opportunity. I think you know, certainly within our university, we're looking at the possibility of there being you know, less funding available. And that, for me, is making me assess what things we could stop doing. And invariably, we'll stop doing the things where I think we don't do them that brilliantly, or they could be done more brilliantly by someone else. And I think if if that's if that's just one of the net effects, then that's a positive. That's to be welcomed, because I think you know we get farther if we go together. Uh, and in saying that, you know, not everyone should be doing everything. So it may well lead to a period of leanness, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it will make us more efficient. Brilliant. Well, whatever it is, it's going to be an interesting few years. Uh, Louise Kenny, thank you very much. You're very welcome. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.